Welcome, everybody, to episode 53 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Dawson, and I'm here with my longtime colleague, Bill Rogio. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FTD's Long War Journal for many years now. And of course, the longest of the long wars is the war in Afghanistan, and we're going to return to that this week, mainly because there's more news. Um, We are recording this on, what is it here, July 9th, and on July 8th, President Biden gave a follow-up speech on his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Obviously, um, the first speech that President Biden gave was on April 14th. Things have not gone well at all in Afghanistan since then. And with the snowballing of bad news coming out of the country and the media um, doing their job and asking him questions about it, he was getting, he got testy uh, right before July 4th and said he wanted to only talk about happy things and wanted happy talk. And so there was also this controversy or reporting now over the interpreters and translators who are being held up, who have not been, uh, basically have not had their visas issued to them so they can be expedited out of the country. There's a whole series of reports on that. And so basically the president and his staff were feeling pressure to address Afghanistan once again. And so the second speech now as the U.S. concludes its military presence in Afghanistan was really to try to alleviate some of that pressure, I, the way I would put it. Um, now, what I would say, Bill, before we get into the substance here, there were a few things that were new, uh, but mostly it, it, he hit the same themes he had in April. I mean, it was they were clearly operating from the same script. We went through that speech at the time. Um, I, I'll just kick this off by saying you and I are not surprised in the least that President Biden is ordering the complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. He hasn't wanted to be in this war. I don't know the last time he actually wanted to be in this war, maybe when he voted to authorize it. Um, but he certainly, throughout the Obama administration, uh, during which he served as vice president, he didn't want to be there. He was arguing against a large presence. He wanted a small presence or no presence. And basically, he returned to the theme in this speech, um, that he the same one he had in April, and probably the same theme he's had all along, that with the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011, that was it. We should have packed up and, and gotten out then. Right, Bill? Yeah, that's that's right, Tom. I, I didn't detect any different themes in this. Um, he just drilled down a little bit more specifics, like you mentioned, things like the interpreters and um, a little bit on the Afghan army, which we'll get to. Yeah. I mean, the big thing, Bill, let's, let's dive in this. Here's the thing. The main takeaway from the speech, in my view, and I'm sure you have your own takeaways from the speech. My, the main takeaway from my view was that President Biden basically floated the partition of Afghanistan. That's the idea he floated in the speech. And he made it very careful that he said that it was coming from him, not the intelligence community. He was very careful to caveat it in that way and say this was his own thinking. It was not an intelligence community assessment. This was just the way he was looking at it. And we're going to get to, obviously, why that won't work in a second. But let's state what President Biden said. He said, I believe the only way there's going to be, and this is where he now inserts in this um, in his speech, this is now Joe Biden, not the intelligence community. The only way there's ultimately going to be peace and security in Afghanistan is that they work out a modus vivendi with the Taliban and they make a judgment as to how they make peace. Now, I use the fancy little Google machine to confirm my uh, understanding of modus vivendi. And of course, the first thing that comes up with a dictionary is that's an arrangement or an agreement allowing conflicting parties, parties to coexist peacefully, either indefinitely or until a final settlement is reached. I think that there is more of a chance that you and I are going to learn to defy gravity and fly around the globe like Superman 
than these two parties coming to a modus vivendi and reaching that agreement. And I was looking at your speech as he was talking, Bill. Uh, I was looking, I'm sorry, I was looking at your map as he was talking, this map you've meticulously kept since 2014, if not earlier, and we discussed on the last episode. And I look at that map and I think, uh, yeah, there's no way that this this country can be partitioned into two. And based on the, the spread of what the Taliban now controls or contests. And moreover, the Taliban wants the whole pie. They don't want half the pie. Right, Bill? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And what you look, the easiest thing for if the Taliban was amenable to some type of partition, what it would do right now, and it could do easily, would be to take the South and the East, concentrate all its forces there, take the South, the East, have some areas in the West, and then stop and then cut a deal with the Afghan government. Say, this is our land, this is your land, we're done. Taliban doesn't want that. As you said, this is shown clearly on the map that that we've put together. Um, look, I, I, one other, I guess this is a little bit of humorous or not so humorous history. President Biden recommended partition for Iraq, too, if, if you recall. Um, yep. He took, wanted, took the, you, now you took that point for me. That's good. You got me that time. Yeah, so. no, yeah, <laughs> That's it, right. It, That's exactly it. That's right. He wanted to divide Iraq into three countries. The three the, part, three right, parts, yeah. Yeah, Kurdish region, a Shia region, and a and a Sunni region. And when I would embed with forces there, I would have Shia like look at me, you know, this was right after he made the statement. Um, and they would say, you guys want to break up our country? I can't believe this. I mean, it was all of them. Like, so there was a, now given Iraq and Afghanistan are two very different countries. Um, but, and with, you know, different, different views on that, but I know in Iraq that was viewed very poorly. Um, they, they laughed it off, all of them. You know, you would think the Kurds would say, I want a Kurdish country. And the Shia would say, give us our Shia region. And the Sunnis, particularly the Sunnis and the Kurds who were, you know, who, who recognized the writing on the wall in, in Iraq at that point in time that the Shia were dominant. And even they were looking for a way to keep their country together. I can't say the same for Afghanistan um, either way. But look, at, but I do know this. That isn't what the Taliban wants. They want it all. It's not the Islamic Emirate of Pashtunistan or the Islamic Emirate of Southern and Eastern Afghanistan. It's the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That's what they want. Agreed. And uh, of course, we've been documenting that for years. I mean, it's it's really interesting how much the U.S. government or parts of the U.S. government have really existed in denial about that uh, for many years now, trying to pretend like um, the Taliban wants something other than the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. I don't see any real hard evidence on the outside here anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, at least publicly available evidence that that's true, that they want something other than the Islamic Emirate. Whereas everything we've documented through the years is that's what they're all about. They've got a shadow government throughout much of the country. They've got governors, they've got district governors. They're ready. They want to take power. And, you know, I've seen some Afghan, uh, Afghans say that they don't, the Taliban doesn't have, uh, uh, an idea of what they want the future of Afghanistan to look like. I see some Afghan commentators say this, and when I say when I see that, I, I think, boy, oh boy, what are you talking about? They know th- the the people who don't know what the future of Afghanistan looks like, unfortunately, is the government of Afghanistan. The people who do know what the future of the Afghanistan looks like is the Taliban and Al Qaeda. They know what it looks like, and you know, you're talking about partitioning Iraq, of course. You know, another comment that uh, President Biden made was that no nation had ever unified Afghanistan going throughout its history. And I mean, he was talking about as an external invader, I guess, or external force. But uh, however, we know we know one party that got pretty darn close to unifying all of Afghanistan in the 1990s, and that was the Taliban on the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So that 
that, you know, I, I often say, you know, when we talk about terror networks or organizations, there's a certain amount of muscle memory or, uh, you know, turf memory, basically. And that's still, that memory still exists for the Taliban in terms of having an Islamic Emirate. Now, of course, it's a horror show for us and for many people in the West, but it's still their dream. It's still what they want. Um, and they're, they're going to fight to try to unify the country once again in the Islamic Emirate. I don't see anything um, to change that. Before we move on, Bill, um, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, very briefly what you've witnessed with the seizing of, of the border checkpoints and other terrain now in the last, basically since we've, I think it's been about two weeks since we released another podcast. Why don't you just explain what's been going on? Yeah, Tom. And, and by the way, the, the seizing of the border points, if the Taliban wasn't interested in northern or western Afghanistan, it wouldn't seize two ports. They're, they're border um, crossings that are also what they call dry ports. Um, they basically are, are ship, trans, shipping transit centers where they collect the customs, whatnot. Two of them in Herat and one of them in um, in Kunduz. These are not in the south and the east where you would think the Taliban would want to build its government. They're seizing that for, as part of these these border crossings. And they seized also a bunch of other smaller crossings in Badakhshan and in Takar, all over the place. And they're doing this because they want to control a country. Um, so the Taliban has made significant games. I don't have the, the rundown of the numbers, but they're make, they've made advances. Uh, Badakhshan has, is all but Taliban controlled. Um, only the provincial capital, and I have another district, they're contested at this moment. Takar looks equally as bad, 14 to 17 districts, Taliban controlled, the rest contested. The Taliban's launched an incursion in Badis province, another one. I don't remember the exact number of districts there, but all but the provincial capital are Taliban controlled. And the Taliban launched an assault into the provincial capital there just uh, over the week, uh, several days ago. Time's really starting to run on me, Tom. Um, and uh, took over the governor's office, the police headquarters, jailbreak. Uh, they've Today, this morning, they launched an assault into Kandahar City, the provincial capital, obviously, of Kandahar. Um, that province looks like it's ready to fall. You know, Tom, we can, I think we were joking on the phone, I was said to you, you know, you'd have to put the names of these provinces into the magic eight ball. And if you ask me which one's going to fall, I shook it and a province name came up and it said, you know, Takar. I'd say, sure, that makes sense. And then I came up with another. I'd pick that one too. It, it's it's at that point. There's, I would say, at least eight to nine districts right now that are teetering on the edge of falling to the Taliban. The Taliban. Provinces to me, eight to, eight to nine provinces, you would say. I'm sorry, eight to nine provinces, correct. There's 34 provinces total. So think about that. Um, the Taliban's advancing on the, the border crossing of Spin Baldock. Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, because this is where the person who, uh, General Zeke's brother, uh, who basically secures Kandahar, his base of power, is at Spin Baldak. That's where he collects his money. The Taliban are forcing him to figure out if they, he wants to defend Kandahar or Spin Baldak, but he's not going to be able to do both. Um, this is, you know, again, five years ago, this would have been unheard of. The, the Razik brothers would have been relied on to secure Kandahar City and, and Spin Baldak, and it's a completely different situation now. Uh, I, and in general, I mean, we're just seeing Afghan forces surrendering or retreating um, from the Taliban or even just abandoning their posts before the Taliban even come. Um, the number of districts that have done this are probably approaching 20. That's significant. And um, we're looking at the collapse of the Afghan army right now. It could be changed. Look, this could turn around, but it has things have to happen and they have to happen soon. 
the Afghan government, you know, we discussed this before, Tom, they have to reorganize their security forces. They got to get their militias implemented. They need to figure out where they're going to fight. And they're going to have to figure out how to take back key areas in the north. Um, they have to do this quickly and nothing and all indications, both. I know you talked about this with me the other day that we're getting from people are the Afghan government and Afghan military leaders are still in denial about, about what's happening. And that more than the number rundown of what the Taliban controls and contests and what border crossings are, that's the most disturbing thing of all. Yeah, I don't know if it's in denial at this point now as we're recording this or just in the dark. I don't think they understand it or comprehend it. I mean, I think that's basically the intelligence we're getting from people on the ground is that uh, there's a lot of confusion. You know, one of the things we've heard is that in some cases, of course, uh, the Afghan forces have sent reinforcements to areas that have been overrun by the Taliban. Have gone Taliban and Al Qaeda and other jihadis, by the way. I always, we always say Taliban is a shorthand for this the network, jihad- the alliance, yes, yeah. this jihadi coalition that's coalition, fighting that, that, that so many people have invested their lives in denying exists, right? Uh, but you know that there are all these parties are are intertwined, um, and um, basically, the Afghan forces will will send in reinforcements on some cases, and it's already too late. They basically are walking into a trap. Uh, this is the type of this is the type of scenario where parts of Afghanistan are going dark, and it does not look like the Afghan security forces, military, know. I don't think they see the whole picture. I don't think they see exactly what's going on. I think the Taliban and Al Qaeda and the jihadis had a very clear order of battle. I think we we'd gotten intel that they were deliberating what their order of battle was going to be for this year. Uh, remember that as the U.S. pulled out. And I don't think that that sunk in with the Afghans that they, you know, and I don't think they came up with their own order of battle and figured out exactly what they were going to, to do. I think you'd agree with that, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree, Tom. And yeah, you're right. In, in the dark is probably a better. I'm seeing, you know, and again, public statements by officials, uh, they're often designed in situations like these to allay some fears but at some point people recognize when they're being lied to um and so that's where i come up with the denial but the, the in the dark is much you know but it is funny tom i'm watching these you know the timing of these videos but you know i you could read online about the taliban are announcing what they're taking over almost in real time and then you're seeing convoys of military troops going in there. It speaks to uh, volumes to their, the Afghan military's intelligence on the ground or lack thereof, lack of, um, uh, you know, command control communication and ISR, the sur- surveillance and reconnaissance via air. All of that is, uh, this is a real mess. And this is what a disorganized and demoralized military looks like. Yeah, we're waiting to see too who's going to step up to be the real leader here going forward. That's that's something that uh, has not been established. You know, how, who's going to try and rally the troops to push them back in some areas, defend other areas, and 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 take the fight back t- against the jihadis. That's part of that's missing here. Is that you know that's what we've talked about. You and I've talked about a lot. Is that the U.S. Um, I don't I hesitate to call it strategy or basically platform, whatever you want to call it existence in Afghanistan for the last several years has basically had the Afghan forces in a holding pattern fighting defense as opposed to going on the offense. And, you know, if you think about this as as two chess players going at it, if you're just trying to defend your pieces and not trying to attack the other player's pieces, well, you're going to lose. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't play the whole game that way. Um, and so uh, it, it seems to us that that's what's basically happened here. Now, I guess let's move on to the next point, which is that in, from President Biden's speech, he says he basically went all in on the Afghan security forces and military. Um, and I have a couple mixed 
you know, thoughts on this. Um, so he is asked, um, well, first of all, he, he trumpets the fact that the U.S. military has told him, U.S. military leadership has told him is that there's 300,000 well-equipped Afghan forces, and he says against something like 75,000 Taliban. Now, I don't really trust those numbers in terms of either side of the equation, Bill. I don't know what you your thoughts are on that. Uh, I think that that's probably off on both sides of that uh, equation before we move on. What do you think? Yeah, so that's the official number. And then there's the big problem of what's known as ghost, ghost soldiers or ghost policemen. Often the individuals um, remain on a payroll, but they either abandon their posts or they just never show up. And so commanders will keep them on the payroll and then just pocket the money. So there's that problem. We have the problem of now battlefield either defections um, or or going AWOL or going absent without leave. That's a very big problem because when, the, when some of these posts, when they surrender um, to the Taliban, the individuals there, they're, they're told, you can go home, but don't rejoin the Afghan military. And what the Taliban's doing is taking their name and taking their picture. They're making their list. And if they're captured again, you can guarantee they'll be killed. And the Afghans are very, um, Afghan soldiers, Afghan police are very aware of this. The Taliban have a very sophisticated, uh, by its standards or by the region's standards, uh, intelligence network. And it's it, so that number might be 280,000. It might be 250,000. It might be 230,000. I can't tell you, but I can tell you it's not 300,000. Um, it's something much less than that. I guess a reasonable guess is it's probably 20 to 25% of the Afghan security forces have either left the battlefield at this point. Have um, Some of them, by the way, are fleeing into neighboring countries, Iran, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, have seen hundreds if not thousands of, of soldiers and police um, cross the border. And uh, I think there's a large number of uh, troops that just aren't, aren't showing up uh, and The other thing I heard, too, is I just read this the other day, is that the recruitment in the Afghan military is down 60 percent. So that 300,000 over the last, uh, I believe, was six months. So that 300,000 number, when was that number issued and is it reflected or how was the ranks being replenished? And with the battlefield losses, by the way, um, you know, what is the inducement? What is the incentive, I mean, for for Afghan young Afghan men? to join the military, join the police when they're watching everything collapse around them. Yeah, you know, the 300,000 number in particular um, is one of those sticky estimates as far as I'm concerned. It's a number I've heard a number of times, 300,000, 300,000, 300,000. And when I hear it being repeated like that over and over again, monotonously, robotically, I immediately suspect that it's just concocted. That's a number that basically, I'm sure there's some back of the envelope calculation to justify the 300,000 number, but just for all the reasons you just laid out, it can't always be 300,000, right? I mean, it has to vary. There has to be some variance in it. And we don't know what it really is today. And I don't, I don't buy the 75,000 number from the Taliban either. I think it could easily be oh, more than that. No, no. You know, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you watch yeah. what they're doing and the success they're having. Exactly. Um, I, I think I, I was talking to a news organization and they asked me what I thought. And again, this is an estimate. But when you look at the at this at the the range of their operations, the scope of their operations, and the, the geographic distribution, 
that number has to be over 100,000. And I think it's probably closer to 150,000. And that might even be a low estimate. As far as that 300 estimate, 100,000 estimate, Tom, a little ironic. We're used to everyone lowballing estimates on us, lowballing Al Qaeda's strength, located in Afghanistan, et cetera. Lowballing ISIS. They low-balling. ISIS, and right, yeah. Right. Here we get a high estimate, but the reason for that is for its optimistic purposes. And I'm sure that that number that comes up is technically correct. I'm sure there's 300 and something thousand Afghans on the payroll for the, for the police and for the military. The problem is, is that's the top end estimate, but it's not the of the the number. It's not the number in reality. I agree with that, of course. Um, so, moving on. At one point, a um, journalist asked President Biden, "Do you trust the Taliban?" And it was kind of a I thought it was kind of a funny moment because President Biden got somewhat indignant. Uh, you know, he's he kind of looked at the reporter like, you know, what the heck are you talking about? I mean, look, President Biden wants out of Afghanistan. He's always wanted out of Afghanistan, but he's not he's not in the trust tree with the Taliban the way Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. Special Representative, or even Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in the last administration. Or even, you know, President Trump even said at one point the Taliban's going to hunt the terrorists for us. I mean, you know, there's just a degree of credulity here that was kind of amazing. Um, and again, you and I, we don't want to need to litigate all that because we've talked about it ad nauseum, but the point is we don't think you needed to do any of that to get out. Um, but anyway, his response I thought was funny. He goes, it's a silly question. This is President Biden speaking now. Uh, do I trust the Taliban? No, but I trust the capacity of the Afghan military who is better trained, better equipped, and more competent in terms of conducting war than the Taliban. So you have two two things here that are going into his assessment of Afghanistan as he gets out. One, he thinks basically he's trying to do an Iraq redux plan where he wants to part. He thinks the country can be partitioned. We don't buy that. But then, too, he's banking on the Afghan security forces saying there are more of them and they're better equipped and they should be able to hold the line. Now, here's what I would say about that before I'll turn it over to you again, Bill. Um, you know, look, the U.S. military has told us for years that the train training mission that's been going on in Afghanistan is to build up the Afghan capacity to fight for and hold on to their country. Um, you know, we talk about the, the, the dire situation that's unfolding here where some Afghan forces are surrendering and being defeated. It's true that there are thousands of Afghans who are fighting for their country and fighting against the Taliban and the Jihadis. We should always remember that. Um, the problem is that to our just independent analytical minds looking at this from the outside, it just doesn't look to us like they have the same will to fight that the Taliban and the Jihadis do. They're fighting for their religious mission, which apparently is news to some former advisors of the U.S. military, by the way. I won't get into that now, but... Um, you know, but apparently some people at this late stage are finally realizing, oh, duh, you know, the Taliban has religious motivations. Um, but, you know, in any event, um, you know, they don't have the same that overall, they don't seem to have the same sort of consistent and, and deep will to win that, that their opponents do overall. We're hoping that's going to change, right? We do hope that's going to change. We, we do. We, we listen, we, we hope the president Biden's right. Right. But now why, why do you not buy what he said there? I know you can't buy this either. Yeah, no, we have to separate our feelings and our facts in this case. In this case, what I want to happen and what actually is happening on the ground are two very different things. And look, I I wish I could sit down with President Biden and just show him probably like five or six Twitter accounts that I follow and show him video after video of Afghan soldiers surrendering to the Taliban, running ambush convoys. 
Unless well, here's he's, the thing. Here's the thing. He doesn't actually care about that. That's what he does. Kind right. of, that's that's kind of. I mean, he doesn't. This isn't really. He. I mean, he he's made but, it clear. He, I mean, I understand. He just wants out. You know what I mean? So all this is sort of making. He's using whatever arguments are at hand to basically justify his views. This isn't an argument he should have made, right? If it, I would have advised him to just not make this argument, make the the argument he could have made was it's and he's made this right. It it seems insensitive, but. It's time for the Afghans to fight for their own country. That's fine. But the reason the reporters respond um, with amazement and shock when he says the Afghan security forces um, are uh, are capable of standing and fighting against the Taliban is because everybody, he's trying to tell us that, you know, our eyes are lying to us. The, the Taliban gains on the battlefield, what we're witnessing. Again, if I sat down with Turner, I could have at least convinced them and said, look, this is what we actually see is happening. Just don't make that point. Stick with your generic. It's time for the Afghan, um, the Afghans to stand up and fight on their own. We got to take the training wheels off at some point. Um, you know, continue, our, our involvement isn't going to change things, et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, he, he basically insulted the intelligence of, Anyone who remotely follows this thing and is willing to look at with it a, a half of a critical eye, you could say, I mean, look, and, and I just read an interview by Muhammad Adenur, the powerful warlord in Mazar Sharif. And I mean, this is a guy who's in Afghanistan. He's got skin in the game. He can commands thousands of fighters in his militia that he now has to organize because the Afghan military is collapsing around him. Um, the Taliban are outside the gates of Mazari Sharif. No one would have believed this. If I would have told you a year ago, Tom, you would have believed me. And, and I know a select about a handful of people. If I would have said the Taliban will be on the gates of Mazari Sharif in, in, in July of 2021, I'd have been laughed out of the room by all of the, you know, our betters who serve as advisors to the Department of Defense and, 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 and resolute support and all that. Well, here we are, and that's happening because the Afghan security forces are in the process of collapse, not because they're well suited. He, if he, you know, he could have changed one word in that statement. Um, he could have said that they're better trained, equipped, and motivated to fight a Western-style war. That might be true, but the Taliban isn't fighting the war that we trained, advised, and assist the Afghans to train to fight. Um, and that's why we are where we are. Yeah, I mean, that's what the U.S. military's training program. But I, mean, I think what I was getting at, too, is that, um, you know, I mean, look, this is what they've been saying for years. This is what the U.S. military has been saying for years. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I don't want to put – we're very critical of the U.S. military leadership for good reasons in all this. And we can – we can we'll, when we write our history of all this, we'll have to go on and on about that over several chapters, I think. Um, but um, – you don't want to. I don't want to criticize the military entirely. I mean, there are other political, erratic political decisions that have been made throughout the war. There's all sorts of factors in play here. But here's one of those places where I would look at this as a test of the U.S. military and what they've said. They've said they've trained this huge security force and military to defend the country. Right? That's what they've said. That's what they told us over and over again. If this force fails and fails quickly, then that is in fact an indictment of what the U.S. military has been doing all these years. I'm sorry. You know, you know, they they think that they can just schlep this off. No, you told us you you all this money's been spent to stand up this force. Now, conversely, if they're able to uh, you know reverse the battlefield gains of the Taliban, reverse the battlefield momentum, and and turn things around and hold on to the country and at least prolong the fight, well, then that says 
something better about the training program and the, and the successes it had. But I do think this is a test for that whole thing, you know? I mean, just in terms of what what's going on. It doesn't mean doesn't mean everybody was involved in training Afghan forces. I'm not impugning your motives or what you did, the work you did. Not at all. I mean, I'm just saying that in terms of the military leadership and how they conceptualized this war and what was going on, it is a test of that. It is a test of, you know, basically did they understand who they were fighting and what they were doing and the type of force they were trying to build to fight that fight. And I, you know, that's the test. And I think I look at all this stuff as tests. You know, I look at President Biden's speech. He has a number of assumptions or arguments he makes that are going to be tested now in the coming months, right? I mean, that's the the bottom line. Now, I don't think anybody's going to care, but still for the history books, we can test what what he said just as we could test what any leader says. No, Tom, that, that's very well said. And, you know, I'll just distill, and I I don't think anything I said contradicted that. I'm just, you know, when it comes to the train, advise, and assist mission, the U.S. military and NATO, um, who's also complicit in this, they just built the wrong, they didn't understand the enemy, the nature of the enemy, uh, its motivations and how it fights and what was important to it and its strategy. And then it didn't build a force, the proper force to combat that. Um, to combat that enemy. And, you know, we tried to put, impress a Western-style military with marching and all of the things that Western militaries do really well, um, set-piece battles and, and commando raids. And at the end of the day, you needed to go, you need to get into the trenches, go toe-to-toe with the Taliban and fight dirty. That's a, you needed a light infant, mobile light infantry force willing to to slug it out with the Taliban and that, that type of military was not built, and that's a big reason for the failures today. And, it, I mean, it was built probably for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm not saying I, want to, I don't want to simple, oversimplify and say it's just because U.S. military leaders failed. I mean, it could be that there wasn't – it wasn't – U.S. wasn't capable of building that force maybe. You know, I don't know. You know, maybe we'll, we'll find out. Um, you know, there, may, there, may, there are a lot of problems here. I mean, I don't – you know, when we talk about this stuff, I'm always mindful that I'm not trying to be monocausal or trying to be reductionist, but – there are certain themes that stand out to us for a lot of reasons, not just one or two, you know. And you know, this this is this is one of those things where we've been tracking with the U.S. military has said for years now about this force, and it is in fact a test of everything they've been saying about it, uh, about the Afghan military, and Afghan security forces. So, all right, let's quickly move on to what President Biden said about the terrorist threat. This is he. This is one of those areas where he returned to the themes from his April 14th speech. And I should preface this by saying, you know, we're not going to go into all the, the details about this. You and I have stood alone as sort of issuing a minority report on Afghanistan and Pakistan for years and what al-Qaeda looks like in the region. Um, yeah, we've, we know, we've documented time and time again how official U.S. assessments, you know, underplayed the presence, downplayed it, and were clearly wrong for many reasons. I mean, it just... Just a fire, in my mind, a matter of fact at this point, and yet the the sort of methodology the of of conducting these assessments was never they never went back to basics and trying to figure out what went wrong. So they find a massive Al Qaeda training camp in Shorabak in 2015, for example. Nobody went back to basics and said, "Okay, we got to figure out how to get this right." So I am that's a preface here. Now, what I would say is I have heard from several sources that there are pockets in the U.S. intelligence community now that do have a better understanding of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan after all these years. You would hope so. Uh, I don't think that it's a complete assessment or a holistic assessment. I think, Mike, from everything I've been told, there are probably parts of these assessments that you and I would disagree with. Um, they probably don't really have the holistic picture that needs to be built to really understand this whole thing. But embedded in President Biden's speech is really this sort of minimalist view of Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. That's, that's embedded in the speech for sure. 
Um, and it's something where, you know, I think there's, we can go on and on and on about why we disagree with that. But I think it's just worth highlighting here very quickly. He said, here are two quotes that stood out to me. He said, one, he basically portrays the war in Afghanistan as a thing of the past. It's dealing with threats as they were in the past and, you know, on 9-11, not, not the threats of today. And so he said, this is the same theme he struck in April of this year. He said, we need to meet the threats where they are today. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized beyond Afghanistan. So we are repositioning our resources and adapting our counterterrorism posture to meet the threats where they are now. And then he says, and this is where he really stumbles. He says, significantly higher in South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Well... So he's trying to contrast Afghanistan with these other regions where the threat is higher. The problem is, you and I know, if you pull out a map, Afghanistan is in Central and South Asia. I mean, depending on how, you know who you ask or how you want to you know divvy up your geographic regions, it's it's right there at the crossroads. And every threat in South Asia that we can think of that he's he's pointing to as a problem is tied to Afghanistan. I mean, the threats coming out of Pakistan are tied to Afghanistan. Threats in Kashmir, threats to India, Bangladesh. Burma, the whole the whole nine yard. There's a whole story here. The whole thing is totally tied into is totally tied into uh, Afghanistan. So this was a very strange moment where he stumbled, right, Bill? Yeah, it, it was. And you know, I would add also add to that list Pakistan, Pakistan, and Pakistan as well as Pakistan. <laughs> but um, but yes, and, and we're giving and giving giving up giving up the, one of the, the counter arguments to withdrawing. Of course, there are many arguments in favor of, but one of the counter arguments is the U.S. is giving up its foothold to keep an eye on these threats that are throughout the region. And we'll get to the, the problems with that in a second, but yeah. yeah. I'm in al-Zawahiri, al-Qaeda's deputy emir in 9-11, and its leader today, is still alive, and he's believed to be in the Afghan-Pakistan region. I believe he's in Pakistan, but he could, you know what? The way things are going in Afghanistan, he may very well be there right today. You know, I guess getting Osama was good enough for, for President Biden but there's a, still a lot of work to be done on that front. Tom and you and I have tirelessly documented Al-Qaeda's presence in the region, how it um, was always underestimated um, intentionally to make the case for withdrawal in, in many cases. Um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to rehash those arguments. But, yeah, that, that that one that one really that statement, I don't want to say it stuck got under my skin. It just was very tone deaf. It, it just. This is the kind of statement a, a president shouldn't shouldn't make because he argued against himself. Um, if he would have actually considered what he was saying, he would he would make the case for staying in Afghanistan. Well, he added later on that, and this is a quote now from him too: "Terrorism is not emanating from that part of the world." Well, he just said that the threat is significantly <laughs> right. higher in South Asia, and then he's later says it's not. I mean, I don't know where to go with this. I mean, this this is this is the problem, right? When it's just a series of ad hoc arguments to justify the policy outcome you want, right? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I almost kind of wish he'd just gotten up there for a minute and said, "Look, we got a lot going on. We got." He, he does mention these things. He says we got COVID, we got the great power rivalries. You know, he's he's got making he's making a priority of climate change for him. Uh, you know, he's got other issues he wants to deal with you know, economic issues. Uh, he just doesn't want to deal with this and I'm out and that's it. You know, we'll see you later. I, and yeah, that's, just, that's, you know, I mean, you know, that's basically, you know, would have been better than a series of pseudo intellectual arguments that sort of don't really add up, you know? Yeah. I, I think, it, I think that his speech like his is just damaging. He's trying to justify it's It's the same point I made when we we're talking about the Afghan military. Just don't bring it up. Um, I always, I have a saying, I think, you know, this Tom where I'm like, 
you know, sometimes less is more. And and he should like he's like you just outlined perfectly, Tom. Just tell us it's time to leave. It's time for the Afghans. Yeah, and the, to he says, stand you know, up and, and, he, and he doesn't want any Americans to die in Afghanistan. Hey, I get it, right? You know, I don't. You know, this this war is is the U.S. is totally confused and has been confused about this war for a long time. You know, what I if I were commander in chief, would I want American service members to die in Afghanistan in twenty twenty one? No, you know. Um, but here, here's one thing I'll add to that too. I mean, one of the areas where he was right was he's you know some of his critics about the on the withdrawal have said that uh, well, no U.S. service members have been killed you know for more than a year now, so basically they can stay indefinitely and not have to worry about uh, violence or casualties. And the president was right when he said, well, wait a minute, you know the reason why they haven't been killed is because the the Trump administration struck this agreement that the Taliban was going to allow us to retreat, allow the U.S. to retreat. And he doesn't use the word retreat, but that's what it is, a retreat. And they're not going to attack Americans as they do so. Yeah, I mean, the point is America's been pulling out, and the jihadis have been willing to allow America to pull out. The moment you say we're staying and we're going to stay indefinitely, they're going to say, okay, we're not going to, we're not, you know, we're going to unleash the hounds. They're going to try and come after them. Now, before the agreement with the Taliban, I think the U.S., this is a, now an even an argument that then reverses itself. The before the agreement with the Taliban, the U.S. had gotten to a point where it was at taking on low casualties. I don't want to minimize those deaths. I mean, I look up the names of those people, those men and women who die in service all the time and think about that because that's a sacrifice here. Um, and, you know, he's basically, the president's decided that he doesn't want to sacrifice one more life in Afghanistan. I get it. Um, but um, prior to the agreement, the fact of the matter is that the U.S. had gotten to a place where it was um, taking on low casualties even before the agreement. He's just now decided that he doesn't want any casualties and he wants out. Yeah. And um, Tom, I'm, I'm going to, you know, here's another contradiction here. The Taliban demands the U.S. leave entirely. Well, we're going to announce the end of the that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is over. And then yet there's going to be 650 or so soldiers at the, Which US the Taliban embassy. has already said violates the supposed agreement and yeah. right supposedly 300 more at the and 50 more at the airport what happens if the Taliban conducts attacks and kills American soldiers that he's rendering his own argument moot there so it's you know this again this is a, um, we're back to the point I I certainly can empathize with the idea that you don't want American soldiers killed but you still may get that um, this withdrawal may not um, accomplish what he thinks it's going to do um, because it isn't a full withdrawal. If it was a full withdrawal, there'd be zero U.S. soldiers. And of course, in that and, and then in, you'd have no embassies and no consulates as well. Um, yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. Well, I mean, the other, this is where it gets to be even more problematic is that the embassy and the diplomatic efforts are going to stay open to broker this phony peace. Right. I mean, this is the thing is he's talking about trying to keep the U.S. presence there to, to ongoing negotiations between, between the Taliban and the Afghan government. I mean, I don't know. I mean, and by the way, I've seen supposed experts are still repeating this line even in the last 48 hours that, you know, maybe the Taliban is taking all this territory as a, you know, for leverage to the negotiating table. Uh, okay. I don't think how anybody can reasonably make that argument at this point. They want, they want the whole pie, not just part of it. Um, and so, so, so even then the, reasoning for the ongoing small presence that is, like you said, is going to be under threat because that's going to be termed a violation of this servile deal with the Taliban. Um, so that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, it's just, it's just tying ourselves up in knots here on stuff that doesn't, doesn't add up. Yeah. And, and so Tom, and, and at some point, at what point 
when you look at how the security system, if it continues to develop down this line, at what point do they, does it become Fortress Kabul? Um, does it become Fort Apache Kabul where they're trapped and they're endangered? And, you know, have to be airlifted out quickly. And then we'll have video of that. Well, you know, pre- and, well, President Biden said there won't be a Saigon moment. There but, won't be this footage of, of the helicopter leaning off the top of the embassy. But that's the problem he's inviting, right? I mean, how it, do you know that, yep. right? If you, if, you, if you actually do keep the embassy open and you do keep troops there to try and protect it, and the jihadis, by the way, continue rampaging and they continue on the march, you know, uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna stop at the embassy gate doors. They're not gonna stop a few blocks away. They're gonna come for it. So you you better have an uh, a, an idea in mind of how you're gonna get out from even that small residual footprint. They're not gonna stop. And Tom, I'm just gonna disagree with you on one point. The Taliban wants peace. They want a piece of Afghanistan day at a time until they have the whole pie. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's not so much a disagreement as a uh, just a. <laughs> Change of terms, I would say. Which, yeah, I, I just had to lead it in, you know. Yeah, yeah, I got it. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that's that's where we're at with all this. I mean, it's sort of, um, you know, now it's interesting too. You know, when he talks about the threat emanating from the region, um, you know, I mean, look, what Al Qaeda and its allied groups are doing right now is they're trying to take back the Emirate for the Taliban. They're trying to fix this one major liability for them that came out of nine eleven, which is that the only um, religiously justified regime on the planet in their own terms was overthrown as a result of their actions. The Islamic era of Afghanistan was overthrown in 2001 by, because, because of 9-11. This, this always opened up a line of argument against Al-Qaeda's strategy for confronting the world and confronting the U.S. Um, they've been devoted for a long time now to consolidating that emirate, to trying to take back the emirate and then consolidate it. Of course, if they're successful in that regard, then everything changes in terms of their priorities. And even before, even before they, even before they achieve success, if they do achieve success, they could change their priorities and how they look at the world. I mean, we know that the literature coming out of Al Qaeda and the Indian subcontinent is already looking very much at the Indian subcontinent, India and and, and other countries, and that they have operations in these other countries. So, I just think that you know, saying that terrorism is not emanating from that region. Um, putting aside the problems with talking about South Asia as if it's entirely independent of Afghanistan. It's problematic in of itself because, look, we're sitting here in 2021. He's got another election in 2024. You can bet that between now and then, terrorism is going to emanate out of this region. Yeah, without a doubt, Tom. I mean, you have uh, you have terror groups that are emboldened by U.S. defeat and, Talib- and, Tal- and Taliban, their alliance victory. Um we saw that we I think we saw this movie in in Iraq in Syria in 2000 starting in 2014 I I don't expect it to be any different going forward well I don't know if you have anything else to add before we wrap up this sort of short uh, presence here oh I got one more point I guess oh I yeah would, let's go add. for it Tom here's one more before we move on one more point which is that President Biden said we're you know we're not there for nation building that we're not there to build a nation um and on the same token, he talked about how the U.S. presence has been for years now, really since 2014. You can quibble with the numbers, okay? But his words, a bare minimum, basically, since NATO and the U.S. ended their combat missions in 2014. This is part of the erratic sort of um, decision-making revolving this war, where basically in 2014, that was supposedly going to be the end of combat missions, and of course it wasn't. Uh, but he's right that the U.S. footprint in Afghanistan has been either the bare minimum or close to it, or, you know, a little bit bigger than that, let's say at times, since 2014. 
Well, that's at odds with the idea that you're nation building, right? I mean, yes, it, it's true that at times the America has been engaged in what you can call nation building in Afghanistan. We can certainly go through reporting provided by the Special Inspector General um, for Afghanistan Reconstruction, CIGAR, and all the waste, all the fraud, all the reasons American taxpayers have to be angry about this war, which are all justified, I would say. There's been a tremendous amount of wasted resources here. Um, but the sort it's been a long time since anything close to peak nation-building efforts have been de deployed here in Afghanistan. And you really can't look at it that way. I mean, this really wasn't nation-building. You could say it was Afghan security force and military building, you know, to try and leave something in place so that America could leave. And there's cr criticism of that. But nation-building as a whole, I, I just don't buy that this has been nation-building for some time now. Yeah, Tom, I, I would describe what happened in Afghanistan as MIC nation-building. The, you know, we tried to pull through the drive through do a quick during the surge, you know, the even <laughs> now that I think about this, they even called it government in a box. Right. That was the term. Holy they, they, shit. Did right. So you said that they actually they did. The, they remember um, when General McChrystal was in Marja and they were touting they called it nation uh, government in a box at, at McNation building. Um, there was a period where the U.S. surged, but they rushed it. They tried to do everything quick. You know, political it was reasons for that's why the political yeah. decision making involves here. But so that's not real nation building. Yeah. yeah. What? Well, but the thing is that even that government in a box stuff that you're talking about, which is just unbelievable, uh, that stuff. It's been a long time since that was the. the yeah, it's a decade point. ago. We're, we're at a yeah. decade ago. I mean, yeah. Oh, and that district marge is under Taliban control, so the nation building really worked well. We're back to the point that you made. Well, how effective really were we, were we in building the Afghan army and implementing tactics That's what it's going to come down to now. Yeah. That's, 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 in my mind, that's it now. We're down to how long can this thing hold out? You know, how long can the Afghans hold out against the jihadis? Um, that's, that's, and, let's, and we're looking to see if there's going to be a leader emerges here to try and rally the troops and, and rally some semblance. I mean, I think, you know, embedded in all this is this confusion over what Afghanistan is. I don't think the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are confused about what it is. It's the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan to them. I think there's a lot of confusion on the other side, partly because of the Americans' fault, but partly because that's just the nature of the, the problem in Afghanistan about, you know, is it is this really a functioning democracy? Is this a functioning government? Is it a, you know, federal-style government? What is this at this point? And then, then, you know, one other thing I could say, and I'm now I'm adding something else on before I let you, before I let you go, Bill, is that, um, you know... The, it was over eight minutes into his speech as I clocked it before President Biden even mentioned the Taliban. He mentioned Osama bin Laden in passing. He made no mention of al-Qaeda today in Afghanistan, which I think is telling and probably will not not bear out well for him in the future. Um, I think they're going to make a big show of what they've been doing all this time. But, um, you know, it was over eight minutes until he talked about the Taliban. And he talked about the Afghan government, Afghan officials getting their act together. And, of course, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. But... It just was telling to me that he basically drew equivalency between the Afghan government and the Taliban and said the Afghans have to figure out, you know, they have to figure out for themselves what their country is. And I, I just think that that's the one of the main problems here is that the Taliban has had a political objective that's been unified under the whole time. You know, they've had a political objective that they've always wanted. And the Taliban apologists aside who've lied about that. The Taliban al-Qaeda have had a unified political objective this whole time, whereas the Afghan government no, no, Tom, that's that's spot on. Um, you know, it, it's the Taliban's strength is its unity. It, um, it 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 has a top down leadership, the rank and file. 
uh, take their directives from the top. Sure, you have, you know, it's not like a classic military, U.S. military top-down leadership, and there's some differences, but it works, and it works well. And meanwhile, you know, on the other side of that, you have a fragmented Afghan government that was, you know, look, I... I don't want to go rehash the whole history of building the, the Afghan government. But again, like just like we tried to build a Western military, we tried to West uh, um, in Afghanistan for the Afghan military. We tried to build a Western government style government in a country that just doesn't operate and just doesn't think those ways. It doesn't mean that there couldn't have been a form of democracy there. But the, the organization of the country has led to many of these divisions that President Biden is talking about. But, but you really, you hit on it, Tom, the, the moral equivalency to say that the Afghan problem, um, the Afghan government's problems and the Taliban problem of its violence, that they're, they're the two sides to the coin. Um, I just reject that. If the Taliban weren't trying to take over the country, the Afghan government probably could sort out some of its bigger problems in short order. The fact is, is they've been doing this under fire um, for two decades now. Yeah, I mean, and I will leave on this point. Uh, close on this point. That's part of the problem with trying to build a stable democratic government, right? Is that the country was not, you could say initially after 9-11 for a few years, there was maybe a window of opportunity and some stability and things looked like they were getting better. But as soon as the insurgency starts raging and the jihadis are look, threatening the government in all these different areas and taking territory and starting to really gain steam. And of course, President Biden says they are stronger now than they've ever been since 2001, which we agree with. Um, as soon as that happens, then then that government has other issues it has to worry about other than trying to resolve its internal political squabbles, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Tom, the, um, it's, again, this gets back to the point you made earlier, right? The Taliban's playing the win. The Afghan government is, or, or the U.S. is directed, and the Afghan government been playing the tide, come to some political settlement. How do you defeat an insurgency? You have to crush it militarily first. There's just no two ways about that. There was never, over, the surge was not a real effort to do so. There were many constraints on it. Then they went right from the surge to talks when the Taliban wasn't defeated. And therefore there was no incentive for the Taliban to do anything other than to keep fighting. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and, and going to talks right away after the 18 month surge showed the desperation by the US to get out. And that was a decade ago. And that's the point here is that there's been this ambivalence. One of the strangest things about the war in Afghanistan is the political and military ambivalence about fighting it this whole time. And uh, I hope we never fight a war like that ever again. Um, so on that cheery note, uh, I will say to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Generation Jihad. Bill, we're up to 53 now. We're chugging along. We're going to get more, more guests, more content to come. We're also going to evolve a little bit. We're toying with the idea of doing video. We've got to do the merch, Bill. I've got a couple people have asked me for merch. I know. Uh, we got to do that. I don't know what the heck's going on. I know you're busy. You're, you're working overtime. You're working like ridiculous hours here, and that's that's uh, it's just yeah. amazing amount of work you're putting in. So, But as soon as we have a window, we got to figure out what we're going to do with that. Uh, and we're going to figure out ways to evolve our content going forward. But please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you again as soon as we can get our act together and record another episode. Take care.